Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 9th of June for the listening week that begins the 10th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Beginning with some current events, this one from the Washington Post. It was posted on June 2nd, written by Andrea Salcedo. Fort Bragg drops Confederate name to become Fort Liberty. Fort Bragg, one of the largest military bases in the United States, has officially been renamed Fort Liberty following a ceremony Friday. The North Carolina Post's new name is part of a congressionally mandated plan to rename military bases, ships, and streets that previously honored Confederate leaders. The plan is the culmination of a years-long effort that intensified in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd and the reckoning it brought over the nation's history of racism. A panel established by Congress recommended the Army rename nine installations that honored Confederate military officers. Welcome to Fort Liberty, the center of the universe, Lieutenant General Christopher Donahue, the commanding general of the 28th Airborne Corps and the newly christened Fort Liberty, said during the ceremony Friday, went on, we were given a mission to redesignate our installation, no small task with its history. We seized the opportunity to make ourselves better and to seek excellence. This is what we always have done and always will do. The other eight Army bases selected to be renamed are Fort Benning and Fort Gordon in Georgia, Fort A.P. Hill, Fort Lee, and Fort Pickett in Virginia, Fort Polk in Louisiana, Fort Rucker in Alabama, and Fort Hood in Texas. The nine Army posts were all built during the first half of the 20th century in former Confederate states. Fort Bragg has been named in honor of Braxton Bragg, a Confederate general who was relieved of command after losing the battle for Chattanooga in 1863, though he remained active in the rebel cause, serving as an advisor to Confederate President Jefferson Davis. The new names for Fort Bragg and the other eight installations were finalized in September. The recommendations were accepted by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin that same month. And in January, William A. LaPlante, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, ordered all Department of Defense organizations to start implementing the initiative. So long, Fort Bragg. Hello, Fort Liberty, read the beginning of the DOD's news release announcing the change. This initiative hasn't always been smooth. The process was at times plagued by controversies on Capitol Hill, with some Republican lawmakers and former President Donald Trump opposing it. During his time in office, Trump said changing the names ignored the history of the military sites and dishonored the troops serving there. The Senate passed a provision in the 2021 defense bill mandating a naming commission 
by a veto-proof majority negating Trump's threats to reject the legislation. Fort Bragg, home to the famed 82nd Airborne Division and Army Special Operations Command, is one of the more prominent installations getting a new name. It's also the only base to be named after a value instead of a person, which sparked some controversy when all the names were unveiled. Other Army bases were renamed in honor of heroic figures or leaders with powerful legacies. Although the names of prominent military figures were considered by a committee tasked with selecting Fort Bragg's new title, Donahue said Friday the committee had a tough time selecting just one name among so many respected individuals. Donahue said every name was considered and debated. Ultimately, any of them could have been chosen. A consensus could not be reached on just one. How could you choose any and leave any of the others behind? How could you actually leave behind those who will come? There were no names that could define what this post is all about. Donahue recalled Patty Elliott, whose 21-year-old son died in Iraq at, in 2011, speaking to the naming commission during their visit to Fort Bragg. Donahue said Elliott urged attendees to think bigger and be better. She said, My son died for liberty, Donahue recounted which he added is the country's most essential value. Next comes from NPR and CPR from June 5th, written by Matt Rogers, a memorial remembrance for Reuben Wilson, organist who helped usher in soul jazz, has died at 88. Few are the folks who could cast a literal shadow over the iconic Hammond B3 organ, nicknamed The Beast, by many of the jazz musicians who have helmed the hefty 425-pound instrument. But Reuben Wilson, who died on May 26th at the age of 88, was just such an organist. When he perched his athletic 6-foot-5-inch frame Behind the dual manual keyboard, quick hands and size 15 feet, sparring with the drawbars, pedals, and electromagnetic tone wheels housed in a wooden box that could be mistaken for living room furniture, it didn't seem so big after all. The funk-ridden grooves of his music could feel larger than life, however, particularly those he created for Blue Note Records in the late 1960s and early 70s. These landmark LPs provided his peers with a groovy situation, in quotes, parentheses, as one album was titled, and would inspire acid jazz DJs and hip-hop luminaries worldwide a generation later. Wilson's death was confirmed by his son, Reuben Ruel Wilson, after battling dementia the last several years and recently being diagnosed with advanced lung cancer, he died in Harlem. Reuben Wilson helped usher in what we now call soul jazz, says Pete Falico, or founder of the Jazz Organ Fellowship Hall of Fame, an organization dedicated to honoring the history of jazz organ and into which Wilson was inducted in 2013. 
he went on, and in the 90s, his music was revitalized when English DJs like Gills Peterson started playing all these old funky tunes he had recorded decades earlier. In his early 20s, a stint playing defensive back for the semi-pro Orange County Rhinos convinced Wilson it was time to permanently swap his cleats for keyboards. Moonlighting piano gigs around L.A. eventually led him to the burgeoning sound of the Hammond organ, gaining traction in predominantly African-American neighborhoods and being propelled by the likes of Bill Doggett, Jimmy Smith, and Richard Groove Holmes, the latter taking the time to show Wilson the instrument's nuances during jam sessions. Wilson became so obsessed with the heart-driving East Coast sound of his mentor, he moved to New York in Christmas on Christmas in 1966. Late-night field study in Harlem clubs, such as the Club Baron, Count Basie's, and Wells' Chicken and Waffles, led to a steady organ gig with noted saxophonist Willis Gator Jackson, introducing him to the jazz scenes, heavy hitters, and piquing the ears of Blue Note Records' Francis Wolfe. A subsequent five-album deal would change Wilson's life. He had noticed during jazz set intermissions, the club's jukeboxes would stir the crowd with the likes of James Brown and Gladys Knight, not jazz, and wanted to incorporate that into his own sound. He said, I wanted a different kind of approach. We played jazz, but we had the drummer play funk, and that worked. 1969's issue Love Bug unabashedly illustrated this beat-first philosophy. Drummer Idris Muhammad's funk undeniably worked, as did the guitar of Grant Green and trumpeter Lee Morgan and tenor saxophonist George Coleman. This groove-centric approach permeated the rest of his efforts for Blue Note. And then again for Groove Merchant Records, and culminated with 1975's funk masterwork, Got to Get Your Own, for the soon-to-be-bankrupt cadet label. Wilson thought the LP's burning title track would be his signature dance floor moment and said, I thought I was going to hit it big like Stevie Wonder. Instead, he was left to wonder about retirement as Hammond organ gigs vanished. Synthesizers became tech royalty. DJs dealt disco hits and rappers grabbed the mic into the 1980s and 90s. But in hip-hop... The art of the sample has a way of introducing what's coming while simultaneously taking one down memory lane. Wilson was one of several recruits on rapper Guru's Jazzmataz sessions and tours, and when jazz record labels reissued their back catalogs for a new generation, hungry for the old break beats, his athletic mastery of the groove floated to the top. As a leader, Wilson performed well into his 70s and recorded at least 17 full-length albums. His longtime collaborator Bernard Purdy said, Reuben was exceptional and had everything together. I never saw him play a regular piano, 
but he played the hell out of that organ. Turning next to TheRoot.com for some more news. Cornell West has announced he's running for president. This was written by Candace McDuffie and posted on the 5th. West shared the news about his 2024 presidential bid on Twitter. On Monday, scholar and activist Cornell West made the stunning announcement that he has tossed his hat into the 2024 presidential election. The news was shared on West's official Twitter account. He wrote, I am running for truth and justice as a presidential candidate for the People's Party to reintroduce America to the best of itself. Fighting to end poverty, mass incarceration, ending wars and ecological collapse, guaranteeing housing, health care, education, and living wages for all. West, 70, is an esteemed author and a former press pardon me, former professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University. He is a notable and sometimes controversial critic of America and its values with a focus on gender, race, and, pardon me, and much of his social criticism on race, gender, and class in American society. I'm not sure about that sentence, but I read it as written. In the video that accompanied his announcement, West explained his approach to politics. We're not talking about hating anybody. We're talking about loving. We're talking about affirming. We're talking about empowering those who have been pushed to the margins, he commented. Because neither political party wants to tell the truth about Wall Street, about Ukraine, about the Pentagon, about big tech. Do we have what it takes? We shall see. The clip also included West talking to Bill Maher about how the only options voters have are, quote, neo-fascists like Brother Trump or milquetoast neoliberals like Brother Biden. West is running as a third-party candidate and endorsed Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders in both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections. According to his campaign site, West policies will include Medicare for all, expanding civil liberties, cleaning out corrupt government, guaranteed quality education, taking on climate change, stopping foreign military aid, and forgiving all student debt. West is Professor Emeritus at Princeton University. Supreme Court protects black voting rights in Alabama. This written by Jessica Washington. In a 5-4 ruling, the Supreme Court ruled that Alabama's voting map diluted the power of black voters. This was published on the 8th. Faith in the Supreme Court is at a near all-time low, especially when it comes to protecting the rights of marginalized groups. But in a surprise ruling, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of black voters in Alabama, arguing that the state had diluted their voting power. The 5-4 decision held that the state violated the rights of black voters by only creating one district where they were the majority, despite the fact that black voters make up 27% of the state's population. The court ordered Alabama to redraw its congressional map to allow for an additional 
majority black district. Part of the reason the ruling came as a surprise is that recently the court hasn't exactly jumped at the chance to uphold voting rights. In 2013, the Supreme Court effectively decimated the Voting Rights Act, striking down key provisions of the federal law that required states with a history of racial discrimination to get approval before changing their voting laws. What followed that was a wave of voting restrictions that disproportionately impacted minority and lower-income voters. And last year, the Supreme Court temporarily blocked a ruling that would have forced Alabama then to redraw an additional map, which makes this ruling especially unexpected. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion. He was joined by Justices Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and Brett Kavanaugh. It's possible that the ruling could signal a change in how the court handles political gerrymandering. Although, with such a slim majority, it is somewhat hard to tell. Certainly all eyes will remain on the court to see how they handle gerrymandering moving forward. Next, written by Kaylin Womack, published on the 8th. Slave descendants in Minnesota and Dakotas to receive $50 million in grants. The Bush Foundation funded an effort to grant descendants of slaves living in Minnesota and the Dakotas $50 million in grants. The Bush Foundation has seemingly got a move on repairing the generational wealth of black Americans faster than any state legislature. According to the Star Tribune, the foundation will issue $50 million to slave descendants living in Minnesota and the Dakotas. The foundation collaborated with Nexus Community Partners of St. Paul to push forward the first program ever to reverse the long-term economic effects of systemic racism. The Open Road Fund will open grant applications on Juneteenth, the day we remember the end of slavery in the United States, the plan is to issue grants up to $500,000 to 800 slave descendants over the next eight years. Through this $50 million open, pardon me, open road fund, Nexus has a chance to provide a return on the investment black folks have long made to this country and create black wealth, said Nexus CEO Ripa Mecca to us. Black wealth building is about creating spaces and opportunities that help all black people to thrive. The following quote from the Star Tribune. Nexus and the Bush Foundation say the program is not a reparations effort because it is not extensive enough, but community leaders ranked the wealth building program with only a few others looking to address slavery's generational effects in a meaningful way. Other cities and agencies also are looking at programs, but the Bush Nexus program would be the first in the Midwest issuing money to the descendants of slaves, said Matthew Ramadan, president of the New Africa Community Development Corporation. While the individual grants are too small to result in large-scale economic development outcomes in Minnesota, I am very hopeful, said Ramadan. 
Nexus said the goal of these grants is to break down the socioeconomic barriers that inhibit the black community's ability to attain and retain wealth. With these funds, they hope for black people to own properties, pay for education, and start their own businesses, the report says. When we have access to an abundance of resources, we can cultivate healing, safety, care, and liberation on our own terms, said Mekva via Star Tribune. Applications are due by July 28th. The next one was written by Derek Z. Jackson, published May 22nd. How Climate Change and Heat Islands Are Killing Black People. The nation's history of redlining and other forms of housing discrimination means that climate change and the black community are on a deadly collision course. If the late Marvin Gaye could add climate change to his ecological masterpiece, Mercy, Mercy Me, he might ask, where did all the cool nights go? Heat waves in the hood, no shade from the sky, no A.C. to keep Grandma from dying. Why might the late Motown crooner sing that? Because on Wednesday, the World Meteorological Organization announced that Earth will almost assuredly see its warmest average temperature yet over the next five years. To that end, there is a better than average, pardon me, better than even chance that one of those next five years will see the planet temporarily breach limits set by the Paris Climate Accords to avoid the cat catastrophic effects of climate change. The Paris Agreement recommended that nations reduce greenhouse gas emissions to hold Earth's warming to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit over pre-industrial levels, which is 1.5 Celsius. The heat is already on this year, with the onset of summer still a month away. Las Vegas had a record day of 93 degrees in April. Seattle and Portland, which broke summer records two years ago with 108 and 116 degrees respectively, set new May records in the 90s. Globally, new spring records up to 114 degrees Fahrenheit were set across Portugal, Spain, Morocco, Algeria, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand. Temperatures like that mean death. Extreme heat kills more people in the United States annually than any other weather-related event, such as hurricanes, floods, or tornadoes. In North America, the most recent searing evidence of that was the more than 1,400 deaths under the heat dome in 2021 that suffocated Oregon, Washington State, and Western Canada. Because of the demographics of that part of North America, most of the victims of that historic heat wave happened to be white. But close attention to the key factors associated with the deaths in Vancouver, British Columbia, Portland, and Seattle reveals threads all too common with the day-in, day-out conditions of many African Americans. Typically, the victim was a socially and materially deprived elder, had underlying health conditions, and possessed no air conditioning in neighborhoods lacking the cooling effects of green spaces. 
Black people share those conditions to the level of being disproportionately sealed under a dome of a hotter world. According to a 2021 study of the nation's 175 largest urban areas, people of color in the United States were more likely than white people to live on what were called heat islands. That's the modern term for concrete jungle, referring to parts of cities where the concentration of buildings, roofs, roads, sidewalks, and parking lots relentlessly absorb and radiate the sun's heat. Such neighborhoods are often marked by a lack of trees, ponds, parks, creeks, and lakes, which naturally cool and moisten the landscape. Black people, according to the study of 175 cities, have the highest surface urban heat island exposure of any racial or ethnic group. Hispanics coming in second. It is not an issue of poverty. The nation's history of redlining and many other forms of housing discrimination in neighborhoods that white interests see as cooler, figuratively and now literally, have resulted in black people being marooned on heat islands regardless of their income, No one yet knows what that means in actual numbers of deaths. The federal government says about 700 people die annually in the U.S. from heat-related illnesses, but a 2020 study estimated that number is much closer to approximately 5,600 deaths a year. The Los Angeles Times analysis calculated that California alone suffered 3,900 heat-related deaths between 2010 and 2019. What we do know is that black people are being disproportionately affected. In New York City, where the health department says 370 people die annually from heat-related causes, black people are twice as likely to die from heat stress than their white counterparts. A 2021 New York Times story found a 35-degree difference on a blazing day in August between the 119 degree sidewalk temperature on a treeless section of the South Bronx and the 84 degree sidewalk temperature on a thickly treed upper west side near the urban forest of Central Park. In California, racial disparities have been bubbling up like lava from a volcano. Between 2005 to 2015, The rate of emergency room visits for heat-related illnesses soared by 67% for African Americans, 63% for Latinos, and 53% for Asians. It should be noted that the rate of black emergency room visitors was more than twice the 27% increase for white Californians. Technically, these disparities are not new. The 1995 Chicago heat wave killed more than 700 people. Black residents had an age-adjusted death rate that was 50% higher than white residents. The highest risk was for black seniors, with the death rate nearly double that of white seniors. Worse, it's not like black people don't know they're in the crosshairs of a sizzling climate. A 2020 poll commissioned by the Harlem-based We Act for Environmental Justice and the Environmental Defense Fund found that 52% of black respondents were very concerned about heat waves, nearly double the 28% of the white respondents who were very concerned. 
The question is this, will the part of our nation that enjoys the cooling cross breeze under an oak canopy ever sweat enough to care about climate change? Or even hear the SOS from our blistering heat islands? Mercy, mercy me, things ain't what they used to be. What about this overheated land? What more abuse from man can she stand? Next written by Kaylin Womack, posted on the 9th. Central Park Karen incident gets Blackbird Watcher his own show. Christian Cooper will host his own show with National Geographic on Disney Plus, following the Karen call, calling, pardon me, calling 911 on him while bird watching. What Central Park Karen meant to destroy a black man birdwatching turned out to bless him tenfold. According to USA Today, the victim of the incident is poised to host his own National Geographic show on Disney+. Plus. Christian Cooper was birdwatching in Central Park in 2020 when he was approached by a dog belonging to Amy Cooper who refused to leash it. When he asked her kindly to leash her dog, she responded rather erratically, calling the police and accusing Christian of threatening her. The report says, luckily, he caught the interaction on camera for proof that he didn't cause any harm. Amy ended up with a charge of false reporting and termination from her job. The video went viral, sparking national outrage against white women in general who criminalize black people for no good reason. However, the Harvard alumnus caught the attention of someone who wanted to launch him from behind the buzz of being just another Karen victim. Quote from Disney Dining, Since his run-in with the Central Park Karen, National Geographic TV, and Disney Plus have managed to turn his hateful experience into a hosting opportunity doing what he loves most, birdwatching, of course. The new documentary series is called Extraordinary Birder with Christian Cooper. Here's National Geographic's rundown of the show. Lifelong birder Christian Cooper takes us into the wild, wonderful, and unpredictable world of birds. Whether navigating volcanic terrain in Hawaii for elusive honey creepers, trekking the rainforests into Puerto Rico for parrots, or scaling a bridge in Manhattan for a peregrine falcon, he does whatever it takes to learn about these extraordinary feathered creatures and show us the remarkable world in the sky above. In quote, Christian Cooper's resume can speak for him. He wrote for birdwatching magazines such as Audubon, worked on the most popular Marvel comics, volunteered on Central Park's Bird Patrol, and served as a panel judge for the National Book Awards, says the report. He is beyond deserving of an opportunity such as this. The series is expected to premiere on the National Geographic Wild Channel on June 17th, and soon after, the show will debut on Disney Plus on June 21st. Moving now to the New York Times. They have a section titled Headway, and I'll be reading from that now. We've recently passed the anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre, and this is related to that. Written by Victor Luckerson. 
It says, Victor Luckerson conducted more than 200 interviews and analyzed thousands of land records, lawsuits, and newspaper reports for his newly published book about Greenwood, titled Built from the Fire. This article was published May 26th. How Greenwood Grew a Thriving Black Economy W.E.B. Du Bois saw the key to black prosperity in places like Tulsa, where black residents patronized black stores. Even today, it serves as a model. When W.E.B. Du Bois visited the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, in early 1921, he, like so many others, was impressed by what he found. The famed intellectual had been on the road for weeks on a southern lecture tour, in his travel diary, he wrote of brutal lynchings and brutalization that were as old as the nation itself. Older, in fact. What grabbed Du Bois's attention was what his people were accomplishing despite that. One notes all through the South, with some exception, the new hope and power of the colored folk, he wrote in his diary. It is not any increased faith in the white people, quite the contrary. It is a distinct sense of their own ability. Greenwood represented this new hope and power better than almost any other place in the country. At the start of 1921, the 11,000-person enclave was ascendant. The district counted at least 15 doctors, a dozen tailors, seven attorneys, a jeweler, a garment factory, and a skating rink among its more than 150 businesses. Several entrepreneurs were worth at least $500,000 in today's dollars. A few were modern millionaires. In less than two decades, Greenwood had transformed from a barren patch of low-lying land north of downtown Tulsa into the nexus of black, economy, me, black economic activity in the Southwest. Du Bois was especially intrigued by how the community as a whole was using group economics to achieve collective success. As Jim Crow laws grew more rigid in Tulsa and elsewhere, during the early 20th century, many black local economies that operated in parallel to white ones were growing and thriving. Between 1870 and 1920, black people's financial prospects rose rapidly, reaching $1 of black wealth for every $10 of white wealth, according to a recent study by economists at Princeton University and the University of Boone, pardon me, that's the University of Bonn in Germany. It was nowhere close to parity, but for people not re long removed from enslavement, there was striking progress. Black people carved out a path to success by relying on what Du Bois called a closed economic circle. As he sought out examples of group economics during his tour, he became most fascinated by a Greenwood theater called the Dreamland and its savvy proprietor, Lula Williams. Williams's rise mirrored the growth of Greenwood itself. Like most of her neighbors, the Tennessee native was a migrant to Oklahoma. She arrived in Tulsa in the early 1900s, along with her husband, John Wesley Williams, and their son, W.D. Though she found a job as a teacher in a nearby town of Fisher, Lula Williams was determined to set out in the world of business. 
1912, after patiently saving a portion of her earnings as an educator, she purchased a lot at the corner of Greenwood Avenue and Archer Street, a hub of social and economic activity that later generations would warmly refer to as Deep Greenwood. There she erected a three-story brick building, which housed her family's apartment, professional offices, and her Williams confectionery, with its 12-foot soda fountain and generous servings of ice cream. The confectionery soon became Greenwood's prime family-friendly gathering spot. W.D. would later say it was the only place on the block where people could get a drink that wasn't bootleg whiskey. Property ownership distinguished Williams and many of her Greenwood peers from other migrants who fled the South in the early years of the Great Migration. In 1910, not long before Williams purchased her lot, 35% of black Oklahomans owned their own homes, compared with 23% in Illinois and just 8% in New York. By 1914, estimates for home ownership were as high as 50% in Greenwood. Oklahoma's black population was well-positioned to thrive. Some were members of indigenous tribes who also had African ancestry, and were granted individual land allotments out of the tribe's collective land holdings. Others were middle-class migrants from the Deep South, who ventured west on the promise of a racial climate that would nurture their success rather than smother it, providing, quote, equal chances with the white man, as one promotional booklet put it. National black leaders of the era often had starkly different views on the best path to black progress, but all agreed that the independent spirit gestating in Oklahoma provided a model to follow. Du Bois praised the state's, quote, thrifty and intelligent colored populace, while Booker T. Washington, his philosophical rival, admired the, quote, unusually large numbers of these black immigrants who had become owners of land. In 1914, Williams and her husband John bought a second property, a 7,000-square-foot lot, across from the confectionery. They soon transformed the space into the Dreamland Theater. It was the first black-owned theater in Tulsa and one of the few black, pardon me, one of the few owned by a black woman. John transferred his stake to Lula in 1915. The opening of the Dreamland was headline news in the black-owned newspaper, the Tulsa Star, which encouraged residents to support the business because, quote, it was constructed by Negroes for Negroes. Williams advertised the Dreamland as the only colored theater in the city, and she was called both a race woman and amusement queen in glowing profiles. When the Dreamland was renovated in 1918, ahead of a screening of the Hollywood blockbuster Cleopatra. She hired a team of black contractors to do the work. We ask your patronage of a race enterprise not because of its identity, but because of its service, she later wrote in a letter to her customers. Du Bois believed that enterprises like the Dreamland held the key to black prosperity in a segregated world. Though primarily heralded as a sociologist and activist, Du Bois studied economics in graduate school in Berlin, he spent much of his life arguing that black people needed to be more deliberate 
and how they spent their dollars, and organized their businesses in order to benefit the race as a whole. In a 1907 essay, he estimated that 300,000 black people in cities across the South were participating in a group economy to achieve economic safety. In Greenwood, residents protected black businesses in part by issuing those owned by whites. A few years after the Dreamland opened, a white businessman named William, pardon me, William Redfern opened a competing theater called the Dixie directly across the street. When Du Bois strolled the streets of Greenwood in the spring of 1921, there was hardly any competition. The colored theater is always full. The white theater is very poorly patronized. Du Bois observed in his travel diary. The colored people are using the boycott and race economic solidarity in Tulsa to an extent which I have never before witnessed. Financial cooperation was key to community success. Greenwood business leaders funded the neighborhood's first library and hospital after the city failed to provide sufficient funds. Church renovations were paid with a mix of favorable loans from some of the neighborhood's wealthiest landowners and Sunday dinner fundraisers by its restaurant tours. Blacks then were of an independent spirit and had a special kind of pride in the black community, W.D. Williams said in a 1971 interview with the local Tulsa publication. He went on, they would not buy from white merchants that which they could get from the black merchant, and by that same token, the black merchant didn't take them for granted. This promising model, Du Bois's long-sought closed economic circle, would be wrenched apart just months after his visit. On the night of May 31, 1921, Lula Williams was at the Dreamland during a film screening when a man clambered onto the theater stage. We're not going to let him lynch him, the man announced. Close this place down. We're going to go to town and stop him. Outside of the Dreamland's doors, black men were arming themselves and preparing to head to the Tulsa County Courthouse, where Dick Rowland, a young black man, was being held after a false accusation of attempted rape. Later that night, armed blacks and whites shot at each other through the downtown streets. On June 1st, after the initial violence had settled, a well-organized white mob of thousands invaded Greenwood, setting fire to the Dreamland, the Williams Confectionery, and more than 1,200 other homes and businesses. While the immediate spark for the massacre stemmed from the accusation against Roland, Greenwood's economic success also fueled white resentments. Tulsa, an oil boomtown, was in the midst of an economic slump in the spring of 1921. One white Tulsan recalled quote, that white men were losing their jobs, but the Negroes, working for less wages, were kept on. Greenwood's black landowners were sitting on the acreage that Tulsa's white elite desperately wanted. The day after the massacre, Tulsa's leading real estate men announced a plan to buy up all the burned-out property. The plan was thwarted thanks to black lawyers and landowners like Lula Williams, who refused to sell. The Williams family escaped with their lives, but almost nothing else. With Greenwood's communal 
self-sufficiency in tatters. The family tried to turn to outside institutions for help. They received little support. Insurance companies refused to compensate Williams for her losses, citing riot exclusion clauses in their contracts. The state government declined a plea for financial aid. Some white businessmen did offer loans for rebuilding, but only at exorbitantly high interest rates. The Williamses struggled for years to keep the dreamland afloat. Lula Williams suffered a steep mental decline alongside her financial troubles. In the mid-1920s, Du Bois would again visit the neighborhood and praise its resilience. He wrote, Scars are there, but Greenwood is impudent and noisy. But Williams's health was already failing by then. She died in 1927. Greenwood was rebuilt and achieved a second heyday in the 40s and 50s, but issues like dilapidated housing built hastily in the aftermath of the Tulsa Race Massacre lingered for decades. A community that had learned how to fend for itself would never again come so close to attaining Du Bois's ideal form of communal black progress. Du Bois was an early champion of racial integration, but over time he became skeptical that white society would ever fully accept black people. The eventual fate of Greenwood may have swayed his thinking. He began emphasizing group economics more and more, which put him out of step with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the organization he co-founded, and its ardent pursuit of desegregation. By the 1940s, Du Bois was advocating that black communities create their own socialized health care system, communally owned banks, and a consumer-focused economy in which goods created by black manufacturers could be sold by black merchants at or near the cost of production. He argued, today we work for others at wages pressed down to the limit of subsistence. Tomorrow, we may work for ourselves, exchanging services, producing an increasing proportion of the goods we consume, and being rewarded by a living wage and by work under civilized conditions. Greenwood, in many ways, was the model. The community created an indelible legacy of self-determination, which black people sought to emulate for generations. A lot of cities had their version of Greenwood because black communities knew they could pardon me, knew that they could create an ecosystem that benefited them, said Andre M. Perry, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, who studies black entrepreneurships and land ownership. In the Jim Crow era, places like Durham, North Carolina and Richmond, Virginia, echoed Greenwood's melding of black enterprise with community building. In the 1970s, as racial integration began in fits and starts, Floyd McKissick, a civil rights activist, attempted to build a planned community in North Carolina called Soul City, which he had hoped would become a shining symbol of black economic power. The community never gathered the funding necessary to be fully developed. When people talk about maximizing black economics, so to speak, it gets to ownership, said Perry. How can we own property, businesses, and culture in ways that advance a community, not just individuals? Today, 
with buy-back-the-block movements in places like Los Angeles, Portland, Oregon, and Birmingham, Alabama, black residents are striving to purchase commercial real estate in their own communities. They see the value of owning the economic engines of their neighborhoods the way Lulu Williams once did. Greenwood's amusement queen wasn't just selling entertainment. She was building a blueprint that black businesses still aim to follow. That's the end of the article. At the bottom, we have a little bit about this um, headway and other. The question they ask, are we doing better than our ancestors? In our new series, Headway, we're exploring black progress and racial equity. We are beginning with questions about economic inequality. So take a second to reflect on what you just read. Think about where you're coming from, wherever you are, from whatever community you call your own. Think about your grandparents and parents' generation. Think about where you are now, and think about what might come next. The Headway Initiative is funded through grants from the Ford Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and the Stavros Nyarchos Foundation, SNF, with Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors serving as a fiscal sponsor. The Woodcock Foundation is a funder of Headway's Public Square. Funders have no control over the selection, focus, or stories, or the editing process, and do not review stories before publication. The Times retains full editorial control of the Headway Initiative. Next, an article by one of the editors of Headway, Matthew Thompson comes from their race-related section of the New York Times, posted June 3rd. Years of progress achieved and then erased. Ten years ago, I lived in Washington, D.C. and would watch cranes dotting the landscape all across the northern banks of the Anacostia River. I was recently back in the city, and now the cranes have been replaced with high-rises gleaming riverside walkways leading to new restaurants with water views. The once trash-strewn river is devoid of plastic bags. A city's economic development is often called progress. Yet in most of the city it has the, pardon me, it has had the effect of shrinking Washington's black population to the point that Chocolate City is no longer an appropriate nickname. Now the last predominantly black part of this once predominantly black city is east of the river in wards 7 and 8 in neighborhoods like Acostia, Congress Heights, and Berry Farm. I was in Acostia, pardon me, Anacostia. I was in Anacostia with members of the Headway team right next to the 11th Street Bridge Park that Megan Kimball wrote about for Headway in August. Residents talked with us about the changes they were seeing in their neighborhood, changes that are often distilled into a single word, gentrification. We have heard from hundreds of longtime residents, newcomers, and visitors to the neighborhood over the past several months, and we met scores more of them in the Anacostia Riverfront Festival, where we set up a booth to capture a time capsule of the community. Progress is complicated for black people in the U.S. Every time I tell someone that I edit Headway, 
which tackles stories that explore the world's challenges through the lens of progress. I think of the glacial, stalled, or backward movement for black Americans on most of the major indicators of socioeconomic status, including life expectancy, home ownership rates, and banking access. The issue Headway has covered most is housing insecurity. Black people compose 40% of those experiencing homelessness in the U.S., despite being only 13% of the population. The reason for this is not mysterious. It is the product of decisions made over decades that have limited progress toward equity for black Americans. To many black people in Anacostia, those high-rises across the newly glowed-up river are dangerous signals. Rents and taxes are creeping up, while the percentage of black homeowners in the area is drifting down. Many residents will tell you that Anacostia has its challenges, and is pardon me, and more investment in the community could help. Good parks and better funded schools are widely appreciated, but the encroaching luxury buildings and long promised Bridge Park might also bring displacement, as it has elsewhere in the city over the past several years. During our time in Anacostia, we looked for examples of majority black communities with thriving economies thriving black-owned businesses, high black homeownership rates, high black wealth accumulation, and other indicators of progress toward economic equity for black Americans, our exploration brought us back to the neighborhood of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, once the financial center of African-American community which was torn apart 102 years ago by white people in the Tulsa Race Massacre. The subsequent article framed a question, are there modern-day exemplars for what a mostly black community can be in the United States? This is the starting point of an exploration we are calling Progress Revisited. We are looking back at historical moments of progress toward racial equity for black Americans since the beginning of the 20th century and looking forward to their lessons and legacies in the present day. We are following trails left of scholars commissioned by Columbia University's Ira A. Lippman Center for Journalism and Civil and Human Rights to explore the persistence of racial inequality in five core aspects of life in the U.S. economics, education, health care, criminal justice, and housing. In each of these areas, we are looking for moments when black communities made notable advancements toward racial equity and asking how we're building on or learning from those advances today. Every attempt to document black progress in the U.S. owes a debt to W.E.V. Du Bois. Du Bois brought an iconic set of images to the Paris World's Fair in 1900, a selection of photographs and distinctive data visualizations. Du Bois intended to supplant the image of black Americans under slavery with a vision of a free black nation growing in health and power, despite extraordinary resistance from white supremacy at every turn. Du Bois, who died on the eve of the March on Washington in 1963, understood progress in generational terms, 
Among the questions he tried to eliminate are ones that reverberated through my conversations with parents and older adults in Anacostia at the Riverfront Festival. And that I invite you to reflect on with us. Are we doing better than our ancestors? Are we building on their best ideas and learning from their worst mistakes? What sort of future are we preparing the next generation for? And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Wana Brands, enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786-7777.